was in Madrid. It was in the Opera House, Copenhagen. And I was going to play the Schumann. And the door opened and Nicholas came in. He always came in without knocking. That's how sure of me he was. Cable from London. I want you for the Albert Hall next month. Do you want a girl? Why ask me? You usually settle these things without consulting me. If I do, it's only to save you trouble. You know, you can do exactly as you please. Can I, Nicholas? Of course. You mean I, I can refuse this offer? Any offer? Of course, if you wish to. No, I, I think I should like to go. I'll wire them now. That night when Nicholas came to collect me after the concert, he knocked at my door. Come in. It was the first time I ever remember him doing so. You ready? Almost. Would you like to dunk the Viking? If you like. We can go to the Rotunda if you'd rather. No, the Viking will do. Francesca, there's something I'd like to say to you. Yes, Nicholas? You said tonight that I never consulted you over anything. Oh, it doesn't matter. It does. I haven't done so because I wanted your life to be as smooth and easy as possible. To save you worry. To enable you to concentrate on your music. Oh, but no, no, let me finish. I've devoted years to converting a very ordinary little girl in pigtails into a first-class artist. I've given up everything to be with you and to help your career. And yet I've made no demands on you at all. No demands of any sort. You understand? Yes, Miss. You're completely free to do as you please, to come and go as you choose. Yes, Nicholas. You're listening to episode 94 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Some people watch The Seventh Veil and get stuck on the scene where James Mason strikes Anne Todd's hands with a cane. They seem mystified that decades later, women continue to be enthralled with the picture. The film's critics don't get the fantasy for women. Maybe they think of fantasy in terms of some brawny, hirsute Fabio type who arrives to carry a woman off to a castle or a barn. For me, in the simplest terms, The Seventh Veil is a two-part fantasy. On the immediate level, it's about a man who recognizes a woman's genius that he can't match. And on the other level, it plays out as a man who waits for a woman. Both of these fantasies have been brilliantly played by Charles Boyer as it happens. In the 1935 picture, Break of Hearts, the viewer locates the exact moment that Catherine Hepburn decides to fall in love with the composer that Boyer plays. When they meet, he first rudely declines from listening to her play at the piano, something she had written. On the way out, he hears her play and enters her shabby cold water walk-up. He asks if she's writing about Washington Square and Fifth Avenue. Hepburn, surprised, says she is. And how did he know? Boyer admits that he tried to do the same thing when he was living next door, but he didn't have it in him. He can only interpret other people's music. He doesn't have the talent to write his own. Catherine Hepburn is the one with talent. He merely imitates. 
Charles Boyer set the gold standard for a man who patiently waits for a woman. In History is Made at Night, he sails across the Atlantic and turns a dive joint into the most celebrated restaurant in Manhattan because he knows that some night she, Jean Arthur, will walk through the door. Each night he waits, he believes, she will return to him. Boyer takes another version of patience to the Empire State Building as he waited for Irene Dunn to arrive in Love Affair. In The Seventh Veil, James Mason believes down to his wingtips that Francesca is a genius. She has a gift that he could never match in his wildest dreams. He will do anything to make sure that she becomes a world-class pianist. Nothing will dissuade him, not saccharine tunes or schoolgirl crushes on music hall amateurs. Along the way, James Mason clears the way for Francesca's career. He takes care of every stupid little detail so that she may continue with her path unfettered by everyday business. The artist and her art must not be disturbed. He waits for her to be great. Then he waits for her to recognize his love for her. That's the fantasy. Anne Todd can lose herself utterly in her talent. And the question of which man she will choose is a foregone conclusion for me because only one of them believes in her destiny as an artist. At the beginning of the film, Anne Todd's character Francesca, a world-renowned pianist, attempts to go the way of Ophelia, and drown herself. She's rescued after she jumps from a bridge and is taken to hospital. She's haunted by the delusion that she will never play the piano again. The psychiatrist, played by Herbert Lom, sets out a course of narcosis, a form of hypnosis aided by a truth serum. He explains the rationale to a committee of doctors. The human mind is like Salome at the beginning of her dance hidden from the outside world by seven veils, veils of reserve, shyness, fear. Now with friends, the average person will drop first one veil, then another, maybe three or four altogether. With a lover, she will take off five or even six, but never the seventh. Never, you see, the human mind likes to cover its nakedness, too, and keep its private thoughts to itself. Salome drops her seventh veil of her own free will, but she will never get the human mind to do that, and that is why I use narcosis. Five minutes under narcosis, and down comes the seventh veil. Then we can see what is actually going on behind it. Then we can really help. The doctor will remove the seventh veil, and once Francesca knows what's hidden there, she will be cured. During their session, a nurse administers an injection, which enables Francesca to get about the business of taking off fails. During flashback scenes, Francesca returns to her days in school, when she spent time with a friend doing things like catching frogs and missing the bells at her boarding school. The beginning of her trauma occurred when she was punished for being late when she was out with her friend Susan, played by Yvonne Owen. A schoolmistress caned Francesca's hands, even though the girl begged for mercy because she had an audition for a music scholarship. The teacher ignored her pleas. Francesca made a dull showing in front of the committee, her hands swollen and in pain. 
Then the doctor guides her recollections to the time when she was 14 years old and recently orphaned, sent away from school to live with her guardian, Nicholas. She receives stern notice upon arrival that the confirmed bachelor doesn't like women. Francesca understands he would like to see as little of her as possible and hear even less. In time, though, they make a connection when Nicholas learns from a school report that Francesca has a talent for the piano. Now he sees her in a different light. She may not be entirely useless after all. Or that's what his eyes say when he looks at her, as though he sees her for the first time. Francesca is violently adamant that she will not play. Nicholas isn't gruff for once. He coaxes her into playing by playing a piece himself. It's serviceable, but not that great. Once he begins to play, Francesca's anger subsides and she moves stealthily closer to the piano. And Todd shows us how much the girl wants to sit at the bench and play by straining her fingers. She can't keep them still. She is aching to stroke the keys. Nicholas is aware of her furtive moves. He makes room at the piano bench. And Todd climbs over the bench and sets upon the ivories without glancing so much once at Nicholas. She's so thoroughly entranced by the instrument that it's like she's sitting at the dinner table for her first meal in a week. She's broken along fast, and now that she's there, she lives for nothing but the music. In the scene, it looks like Francesca's life depends upon playing the piano. She breathes and eats each note. Nicholas watches her at a safer move so as not to frighten her off. From that moment forward, their relationship changes. She's no longer the pesky little ward in the shadows. Now she becomes his reason for living. If you watch James Mason listening to her play, it's like he's standing with the warmth of of the sun on his face after a long, cold winter. His whole aspect changes. His shoulders relax. His face softens. His jaw unclenches. He devises a schedule whereby Francesca plays for four or five hours a day. That's what it takes to develop her gifts. At one point, he tells her, right, that's everything I can teach you, then sends her off to a posh music school for proper lessons. On a lunch break at school one day, she meets an American musician. How good can he be if he's playing a joint where students eat? During the scene when they meet, Anne wears a beret in a fashion I've never seen before, but it does everything to build her character. She's young and inexperienced. She doesn't wear the beret in a jaunty style or angle like Garbo or Joan Crawford would have. Anne Todd wears the beret pulled straight down over the crown of her head. The ridges pucker out like a pie crust. It makes her look earnest, innocent, and unworldly, exactly as she is. Nicholas has gone out of town while Francesca develops a schoolgirl crush. The horn player says things like, if this were a movie and lays out the plot, she's the snobby rich girl who dislikes the musician and then falls in love with him anyway. Her head is full of soppy love songs, the type the musician plays. When Nicholas returns and asks her to play for him, she starts out with a love song. 
His face curdles up at the saccharine tune. He recoils vehemently. Spare me your suburban shop girl trash. Dear listener, I gasped. James Mason hasn't devoted his time and care to building an artist just for her to play the hit parade songs they play at the soda fountain. He wants an artist, not cheap sentiment. In another scene, Francesca announces that she's engaged. During the scene, she wears a knit top embroidered with two blooms hanging in a flower pot. The leaves from the flowers hang over the side of the flower pot like limbs of two lovers, perhaps dangling in the side of a boat on a pond. She looks like a baby girl full of puppy love. Nicholas shuts her down immediately. She's only 17 years old, still his ward, and he will never consent to her marriage. He smacks her face and sends her to bed while she protests vehemently. Left unsaid is why marriage at 17 is out of the question and should be a tragic mistake for her. She was meant for bigger things than a pile of nappies for a mediocre musician. Francesca's resentment for Nicholas grows while they spend five years on a long tour of European cities. She begins to play headlines that grow in size and prestige. Then an offer comes from the Royal Albert Hall. She uses the opportunity to strike a bid for independence from Nicholas and to meet once more with Peter, the American musician played by Hugh McDermott. For the booking in the Royal Albert Hall, Francesca wears a long gown of black velvet with dramatic sleeves that fall nearly to the ground. She plays Rachmaninoff's second concerto. While she plays, the camera cuts to Nicholas backstage listening. His face again softens. He beams. He listens with his whole body. It's like he transcends himself in the cane when Francesca plays. At the finale, he's overwhelmed and he stands backstage to hand her a bouquet for her final bow. Then Nicholas waits for her. He looks pensive, expectant from the rear as he waits for her backstage. When she comes out, Francesca swerves around him and walks by as though he weren't there or were invisible. She has a more important meaning in her mind. She's in search of Peter and finally tracks him down. He's a band leader in a nightclub. They look so mismatched when they meet. Francesca looks like a Byzantine empress, regal in a lush velvet gown. Peter wears a cheap tuxedo and waves his hands around for a living. These two make absolutely no sense together. Peter is the type who would insist that she give up her concert tour to stay at home and iron his shirts. And he would have a chippy on the side in no time. Nor does she belong with the painter, Maxwell Layden, played by Albert Liven. He offers her sex, but not marriage. In 1965, that would have been fine, but 1945, that's an insult. He doesn't love her for who she is. He fell in love with the portrait he painted. He also seems fairly content for her to remain ill and dependent on him. The doctor, too, isn't a potential romantic interest. He sees a puzzle, a patient he can cure. 
Herbert Lom is intense and gives a compelling performance, but the doctor he plays is destined to help Francesca find her way out of the belief she can't play and then return to his own practice. When the doctor has delivered the news to the men waiting that Francesca has made up her mind and realized the man she truly loves, Nicholas leans heavily on his cane and disappears limping away into his study. The suspense is delicious as Anne Todd runs down the stairs and towards the man she loves. Finally, she breezes by the band leader, the painter, the doctor. She flings open the door to the study and meets her mentor who stands forlornly, shoulders sagging, in front of the piano. It had to be Nicholas. Byronic Nicholas, devoted, convinced of her genius, and happy to serve. It was Nicholas who saw the pain Francesca experienced when her school chum brought back traumatic memories before a performance. He stood by Francesca, glowering at the chattering society simpleton. It was Nicholas who invested everything he had in her talent so that she could shine as a world-class artist. James Mason is so tender when he visits her at Max Layden's, when she's convinced she'll never play again. For the first year, she can get better, he tells her, with the doctor's help. Just as he convinced her at 14 that she could play, he restores her gift through the power of his faith in her. A man who puts his belief in a woman's art, who does everything to make her the best, removes every impediment and boring detail so she can live for nothing but to play and play. This fantasy is so rich and appealing and subversive. For the life of me, I can't picture anyone making this film today. Muriel Box who enjoys the reputation for being Britain's most prolific female director, came up with the idea for the original story and wrote the script for The Seventh Fail with her husband, Sidney Box. The Boxes won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay at the Oscars. Muriel had an awful relationship with her mother. She first left home at 17 with three shillings in her pocket, along with a toothbrush and a book, The Bare Necessities. She had to return after a few days when the money was gone and she was tired of starving. But Muriel left for good a few years later when she found a secretarial job in a corset factory. One day she met a man on the train who noticed she was reading a film magazine and they struck up a conversation. He was Joseph Grossman, head of Stoll Picture Productions. He later put in a word for Muriel to take up a job in the scenario department with British Instructional Films. Muriel arrived there in the scenario department in 1929 during the transition from silence to talkies. She taught herself how to write a script. In 1932, she worked on scripts for Quota Quickies made by Michael Powell. She worked as a continuity girl for British Gaumont the following year. Muriel began dating Sidney Box in 1933. They moved in together. The following year, in 1934, they began their collaborative writing relationship. They noticed that the popularity of amateur dramatic societies in Britain, especially among young women who joined them, did not match the parts available in the established plays, which featured parts mostly for men. 
Sidney met with a publisher and scored a deal to write a collection of six one-act plays for women. He partnered with Muriel for the book. Muriel and Sidney had three months to deliver the book and submitted it on time. It sold out and went into multiple printings. They wrote another collection of six one-act plays. In the years that followed, they wrote more than 60 plays for women. They lived comfortably on book sales and royalties from the stage productions. When the war came, theaters dimmed and amateur productions halted. They decided to write a popular book called The Blackout Book in 1939. It was full of stories, puzzles, games, and jokes aimed to entertain people stuck at home. The Blackout Book was a big success and a financial boon for the boxes. Sidney used the money to finance a deal to start producing pictures for the war office, little documentary shorts. Sidney brought his sister Betty into the production company he called Verity Films. Muriel wrote the scripts and directed her first picture for Verity in 1941. She said she took to directing like a duck to water. At the war's end, the government had asked them for a film about the use of hypnosis and therapy for soldiers who were struggling with the psychological toll of the war. Muriel had the idea that it would make a great picture if they applied the premise to an artist. Muriel initially envisioned it as a woman's picture, with the artist being a famous dancer or a violinist. Sidney agreed that it sounded good and asked Muriel to write out a treatment. From there, she began the script. Initially, Margaret Lockwood was considered for the leading role in The Seventh Veil, in the plot about a suicidal concert pianist. But then Muriel and Sidney approached Anne Todd one night after her curtain call for Lottie Dundas, a play where Anne took the lead role as a woman who becomes an actress and may have inherited insanity from her father, who was condemned as a murderer. According to Anne, the script for The Seventh Veil was initially experimental, with the concert pianist Francesca as the only character who appears directly on screen. Everyone else appears in reflections and mirrors or the piano in a series of flashbacks. Anne felt uncomfortable and unable to carry a picture that way, so the box is obliged with a more traditional story and characterization. Sidney took the script for The Seventh Veil to J. Arthur Rank, head of one of the biggest studios. The script was passed around to the board for approval. The Rank Studio had 24 managing directors on board. The reception from the board was less than enthusiastic, but Rank had given the script to his wife for feedback, and she was convinced that he should move full steam ahead on production. In a meeting with the board, J. Arthur Rank told the members that he backed his wife's opinion, that he had also read it and concurred. Rank overruled the board's decision they were making the picture. J. Arthur Rank was a curious figure in the British film industry, wholly unlike the American moguls in Hollywood. He was initially drawn from his success as a miller and bread maker to the pictures with a missionary zeal to use his wealth to develop a cinema for Christ. Rank was a devout Methodist who tooled around on an old bicycle during the war. He taught Sunday school, was teetotal, and fairly unadorned for being one of the wealthiest men in Britain. 
Rank's company eventually comprised five studios. They owned 650 cinemas in England. They produced features, newsreels, educational documentaries, children's programming, and a charm school to develop stars. Time magazine published a profile on Rank in May 1947. The reporter noted, not since the Renaissance popes have a group of artists found a patron so quick with his wallet and so slow with unsolicited directions and advice. Time described J. Arthur Rank as a grandfather clock of a man who has stayed but spent one million pounds a year on publicity for his productions. Among the British film industry heavyweights, Rank's approach was exceedingly modest. He was known to say, I know I have no talent for making films, but I can help you get the money you want. In her memoir, Anne Todd notes that the boxes felt they could not proceed with the picture without getting a male star on board. Anne was keen to do the picture because she felt that it had everything, a bit of Pygmalion, a bit of Cinderella, and a bit of Svengali. James Mason read the script before he was attached to Star as the Guardian Nicholas. At first, he was signed for another picture, which just so happened to be I Know Where I'm Going, and wasn't free to do the box's script. But then the deal fell through and he was able to take on the seventh fail. Anne had prayed and prayed the night before that he would say yes. Anne had studied in the Royal College of Music for three months to prepare for her role as Francesca. She learned how to cheat the camera and appear as though she were really playing. In reality, Ellen Joyce substituted the real deal off screen. Anne acted the scenes at the piano with so much hard work and gusto that when the film premiered with that scene in the Albert Hall, people thought she was really playing. Anne noted that when she sailed for New York, she received a cable from Carnegie Hall with an invitation for her to play the concerto from the Seventh Vale. Production was hampered by the war. Each morning, cast and crew would be late and delay filmmaking. Bomb raids during the night would close roads and divert transportation. Wailing sirens interrupted dialogue. An unexploded shell by Pinewood Studio detonated just before the scene where James was meant to strike her on the hand with a cane, which made it even more difficult for Anne to keep her hand still on the keys. Part of the studio roof took a hit and then leaked throughout the production. Nerves on set were often rattled. Because of rationing, they had to scramble to find the right clothes for Anne Todd's costumes. Anne Todd was dead on when she pointed out that there was a lot of sex in the picture, even though she had no love scenes with Nicholas. Sometimes when actors have an off-screen affair, it cools the heat between them on screen, but the opposite occurred during the seventh fail. Anne Todd did not directly confess that she had an affair with James Mason in her memoir, perhaps because he was still alive. She does mention that he once hugged her in public when they were out window shopping in London. The emphasis that she gives to the public display of affection suggests something kept hidden, something deeper. And she made a big deal about the time they were together years later, away at a seaside resort, when he took a picture of them with her dog, Whiskey. 
years after they both published their memoirs. Anne gave an interview to Sheridan Morley for his biography of Mason, where she admitted the truth that they had an affair. Anne recalled, He was already a very big star because of the Gainsborough costume pictures, and I was very nervous of him, which I suppose was what our film relationship was all about. But his sudden laughter and a curious kind of need to be loved made him terribly attractive. We never settled down together, both of us always married to other people, and usually the wrong people. But looking back on it now, I don't think I've ever been as close to anyone in my life as I was to James. And we do seem to have achieved something together in that one film which lives on in people's memories. When the film was finally finished over schedule, but still on a modest budget of £92,000, they were able to have an opening night premiere in Leicester Square with lights on the marquee as the war had officially ended. The Seventh Veil was a sensation. James Mason noted that if superstars had been invented in 1945, that's what Anne Todd would have become as a result of the great personal success that she scored in The Seventh Veil. She demonstrated an interestingly ambiguous personality. We saw a scrubbed urchin behind whose little girl attractiveness there was a hint of danger. Of his own change in fortune, Mason observed that thanks to Muriel and Sidney, he was now a piece of merchandise worth bidding over in Hollywood. Hollywood was ready to roll out the red carpet for both Ann Todd and James Mason. Ann Todd won a million-pound contract with Rank Studio. It launched her into the cast for Hitchcock's The Paradigm Case in Hollywood. J. Arthur Rank installed Sidney Box to run Gainsborough Studio, Sydney's deal was to produce 10 to 12 pictures a year in the range of 150,000 to 200,000 pounds each. From 1945 to 1950, he made 44 films for the studio without a break. In turn, Sydney installed his sister Betty to run the studio's production end. He put Muriel in charge of script development. Betty received a better deal in the end with more power, money, and influence. Muriel did go on to direct pictures in addition to writing them, but she was second-guessed by men in the front office, and often women stars gave out about having a woman director. Gene Simmons, for example, protested so loudly that Muriel was assigned to so long at the fair that Muriel was taken off the project. Kay Kendall also groused about having Muriel direct. In 1964, after Muriel had been professional partners with Sidney for 30 years, he delivered a bombshell over lunch. Shortly before they met for lunch, Muriel received a tip by phone that Sidney had a live-in lover installed in the loft he kept as a writing retreat. Over lunch, Sidney calmly admitted that he had never been faithful to Muriel. He gave her the news in a dry, dispassionate tone, as if they were discussing the production schedule in Gainsborough. Sidney confessed that he had slept with many women over the years, basically whomever would have him. He was now planning a future with his lover and wanted a divorce. Muriel did not take it well. She signed herself under a doctor's care. She confronted Sidney and his mistress in their love nest. 
Later, they decided to emigrate to Australia to escape Muriel's wrath. In the end, Muriel pulled herself together and started a feminist publishing house. She went back to writing and salvaged her life from 30 years of collaboration with a liar and a cheat. As a girl, Anne Todd endured a painful bedtime ritual. She would watch her mother float into the room to say goodnight, carrying a trail of perfume and powder. Anne watched her mother take her younger brother from his bed. She would pick the boy up, cuddle and kiss him before returning the boy to bed and tucking him under the covers. Anne would wait, lie still, barely breathing. Then her mother would sail across the room, turn off the light and close the door. The bedtime ritual was one that Anne came to dread and that feeling of being unloved and lonely blighted her childhood. Anne once overheard a neighbor ask her mother how the kids were. Her mother gushed over how beautiful and smart her boy was. And the other one, the neighbor asked, still a burden, came the reply. Starved for love at home, Anne found it with her Aunt Tanty and her Uncle Bill. Anne's mother's only wish was to get her daughter married off to an earl or somebody as quickly as possible. She consented to send her daughter to the Central Speech and Drama School in the Royal Albert Hall for the teacher training they offered, rather than the track designed for students who wanted to make a career on stage. Mrs. Todd felt her daughter could make a living by teaching enunciation lessons if need be, you know, if nobody would marry her. During the three-year program, Anne had only sporadic opportunities to act, which were often supporting male roles, and she wasn't there to showcase her dramatic gifts. But she did perform in productions that had a lasting impact on her life, including Paolo and Francesca, the 13th century Italian tragic romance about star-crossed lovers. Playing Francesca meant so much to Anne that she gave the name to her daughter and suggested it for the heroine in The Seventh Veil. As was the case with Margaret Lockwood, Anne caught a break as a student when producers of a local show needed a last-minute replacement. Anne happened to know a play from her studies at Central. She knew the lines for a part in Yeats's play, The Land of Heart's Desire. Anne took over the role of the fairy child. Once she graduated, a vague cousin, as Anne put it in her memoir, arrived with a plan to marry her and take her back to India with him. Anne's mother approved of the marriage and couldn't wait to see the back of her daughter. In despair, Anne decided to seek help from her uncle uncle Bill, whom she always trusted. Bill had a pact with Anne that he would try to contact her after he died to prove there was life after death and communication from the great beyond was possible. Anne may have inherited her lifelong belief in the occult or new age spirituality from Bill. One day, the playwright Ian Hay was visiting Uncle Bill. He remarked during one of Anne's crying jags that she should make a career on the stage. Why waste that drama? It was the push she needed. Anne resolved to be an actress no matter what her mother said. Anne joined many plays in bit roles, for which producers paid more for her wardrobe than for her acting craft. During her early run on the stage, she was a passenger during a car wreck. At the scene of the accident, 
they put clips on her face until plastic surgeon could be found. The surgeon was afraid Anne might be permanently blind in one or both eyes. Dr. McIndoe had cutting-edge techniques. In the end, he saved Anne's vision and her beauty. During the war, he would use the same techniques to restore men disfigured on the battlefield. As Anne recovered and returned to the stage, she met David Niven, who was rather starstruck with the young ingenue. They dated briefly and remained friends for life. He used to call her Todd Epic because Anne was choosy and she only wanted the best. One night, he took her to the Café de Paris for dinner and then couldn't pay the bill after Anne ordered champagne, oysters, and asparagus. The restaurant took a dim view of Niven's inability to pay and kept him on for three days washing up in the kitchen. Anne wound up marrying her first husband on impulse. Victor Malcolm was the grandson of Lily Langtree. He convinced Anne that it would be much more exciting to marry quickly rather than having time for an engagement. She would need to win his mother's approval first. When Anne went to meet Lady Malcolm, the imposing Doyenne asked her if she were a virgin. Anne replied solemnly, I'm afraid I am. Lady Malcolm laughed and they made friends. The marriage was doomed to be short-lived. On their wedding night, Victor was more interested in the racing results than in his new bride's picture on the front page. Probably the best thing about her marriage was that he didn't mind that Anne continued her stage career, and they had a son, David. Anne soldiered on in productions during the Blitz. She helped calm children from the stage as Peter Pan when bombs fell. It was the role in Lottie Dundas that was the big breakthrough for Anne and led to her being chosen for the seventh veil. Meanwhile, she worked as an air raid warden at night. Anne met her second husband, Nigel Tangy, a pilot and a BBC radio correspondent and author. She gave birth to their daughter, Francesca, as bombs fell. The doctor advised her to focus on the life she was creating, rather than all the destruction around them. On VE Day, Anne was shopping in Lily White's lingerie department. She recalled that the customers, half-dressed, became a little bit giddy and flung the undergarments out the window as they danced around and embraced each other to celebrate the end of the war. Anne was loaned out to Hollywood at an enormous sum based on the strength of her performance in The Seventh Veil. She was signed to do The Paradigm Case with Hitchcock, his last picture for David O. Selznick. Shortly after she arrived in Hollywood, on a stopover on her way out to the film colony, Anne met Hedda Hopper in 21 for an interview. Anne felt overwhelmed by the columnist, whom she thought was too big and vibrant to be real. Anne tried to relax over dinner until Hedda asked a question about one of her marriages. Anne tensed up and tersely stated that she would not care to answer any questions about her personal life. Clearly, Anne was unaware of Hedda Hopper's interview style, which would include almost nothing but personal questions. Anne leaned forward and put her elbows on the table to make the point more forcefully. As she did so, Anne's elbow ripped through the sleeve of her dress and made a large hole. 
had aghast. Oh, Miss Todd, how dreadful, how embarrassing for you. Anne recovered and tried to pass off the wayward elbow. She told Hedda not to be upset that the dress was old, that it had been white and was recently dyed black, and that she had had the bottom portion cut off to try and make it over and make do during wartime shortages. Anne told Hedda, anyway, now you have a good story for your column. Poverty-stricken British actress's dress falls to pieces on arrival in New York from war-weary England. Hedda laughed and was delighted. Nothing could win her over like a tip on how to make a good column. Anne was fascinated by Hollywood, especially after the grueling wartime shortages. In Hollywood, she discovered, if your eyebrows didn't match, they fixed them. If your teeth were crooked, they gave you new ones. Selznick looked at her and noted, I presume you have a bosom, show it. During the first day on set, they were filming the dinner party scene hosted by Charles Lawton and Ethel Barrymore, who plays his wife in the picture. The cameraman complained that he couldn't shoot Anne because she had broken out in a bright red rash all over her neck and chest. Hitch suggested they take a break and let Anne get some air. Assistants walked her around the studio so she could calm down. The rash was still visible when they tried again. Anne was sent off to the studio nurse. The nurse gave Anne a shot. Anne had no idea what was in the needle, but they proceeded to film the scene. Afterwards, she heard a crew member say, I hope we're not going to have her like that all through the film. Good God. Anne observed the tension between Hitch and Selznick on set. Both men wanted things done their way and done differently. For one scene, done in a continuous shot, Anne enters the front door of the home she shares with Gregory Peck, then takes off her coat and shoes, rings someone on the phone, conducts a conversation with Peck, who's upstairs, and then goes up to meet him to play an elaborate love scene. It was difficult to complete. They wound up doing it 35 times. The door would stick, or the camera or microphone would have trouble syncing up, and Selznick wanted changes that would interrupt the uncut take. A labor strike occurred, which halted production. During the break, Alma and Hitch invited Anne to stay with them in Santa Cruz. They had arranged to meet in San Francisco, in the Mark Hopkins Hotel with a great view of Alcatraz, for a little local ambiance. Anne sat at the bar before joining Hitch and Alma at a table, while the couple finished catching up on their private chat. A man approached Anne and began to hit on her. When she tried to put him off, saying she was about to sit down with Hitchcock and his wife, the man suggested that she should play it sweet and make it up to Hitch to get the part. Anne made the mistake of sharing what happened when she joined the director and screenwriter wife for dinner. Hitch milked the story for all it was worth and made Anne uncomfortable by playing out the scenario, leering at Anne, ducking under the table to stare at her legs and making a strange joke about how she needed to show him that she can make love on screen and swing her hips. Hitch lost the run of himself with the idea of getting Anne on the casting couch. Anne turned red and laughed. Alma grabbed her husband's arm to knock it off. 
One day on set, Anne had a run-in with David Selznick over her wardrobe. Anne had thought one of her old dressing gowns would work best in the scene, instead of silk brocade number with a mink collar that the studio had selected. She said it was too fancy that no one dressed like that for going to bed with their husband. Selznick replied it didn't matter. The audiences in Arizona and Iowa have got to know you're rich. The studio sent Anne out for a film premiere one night for publicity. She wore a floor-length white ermine cape borrowed from Loretta Young because she still didn't have any decent clothes. Again, she met Hedda Hopper, who was live on the radio outside the theater. Hedda introduced Anne to the radio audience. And here we have little Anne Seventh Vale Todd all the way from England and exclaimed how lovely Anne looked in her ermine cape. Anne, not catching on, admitted it was borrowed for Loretta Young that she didn't own an ermine cape. She never quite meshed with the glamour rituals that made the publicity machine work. At any rate, she was pleased with her experience in Hollywood. Anne believed that Hitchcock brought out the best in her, but she couldn't wait to sail for home. On the set of The Passionate Friends, first titled One Woman's Story, Anne was vexed that the director, David Lean, had avoided meeting her before the production began, as was customary. She met him for the first time as they were shooting a scene where she dances with her on-screen husband, played by Claude Rains. David rode a crane and swooped down for a close-up. They soon fell in love and were married. Anne had spent all the money she had saved from making the seventh veil to pay for her divorce from her second husband, Nigel Tangy. Anne made three pictures with David, and then they parted ways in 1954. Anne was attuned to fellow actress like Ingrid Bergman, who had her life shattered because of Hollywood politics. She reached out to Ingrid after she became a pariah due to her romance with director Roberto Rossellini. They were friends for life. Once, Rossellini fell afoul of law while shooting a picture in India. Ingrid asked Anne to intercede, knowing that Anne's was friends with Nehru. Anne arranged a dinner, which smoothed the legal difficulties for Roberto. Afterward, Anne recalls that she and Ingrid celebrated in her garden. They removed their dresses, sitting around in their slips during a hot summer night, drinking whiskey and toasting the success of their charm offensive. Anne told a harrowing story in her memoir about when she went to Brighton for a rare holiday with her secretary, Cookie, and her beloved dog, Whiskey. They arrived at the hotel late at midnight. Anne sent Cookie to bed and then took Whiskey out for his bedtime constitutional. The street was deserted, Anne recalled, except for two men who stood frozen at the end of the road. Suddenly, Anne felt panic and began to run. The men chased her down and gave her a savage beating. One man beat the left side of her head and face with a kosh, one of those collapsible clubs. Another beat her with a pair of knuckle dusters. The two men stole her purse and left her in a bloody heap on the road. Anne, covered in her own blood, dragged herself along the road once she regained consciousness. Poor Whiskey was in a state trembling and hysterical. A policeman found Anne and carried her back to the hotel. Charles Lawton, happened to be a registered guest. He took whiskey in the kitchen and fed him sausages until the dog calmed down. 
He took care of him until Anne was released from hospital. Later, the head of the gang of criminals that they belonged to expressed regret in a letter for what they did to Anne and added that they enjoyed her performances on screen. Like many actresses, Anne Todd downplayed her own dramatic gifts. In a self-assessment, she wrote, I don't really consider myself an actress. I don't think I ever act. The parts I have played in my career that have come off best usually have been a continuation of myself. Lady Macbeth, whom I played much later at the Edinburgh Festival and at the Old Vic, was the Celtic wild side within me, even wanting to murder sometimes. Peter Pan felt like me. I seemed to want to float through life. Then then there was Mad Lottie in the stage play of Lottie Dundas. I feel dangerously mad like her sometimes. And the seventh veil, even at the time of making the film, I was drifting through a sort of mist in my private life waiting to be released. Anne Todd delivered indelible performances in the seventh veil, So Evil My Love, Madeline, The Passionate Friends, and The Paradigm Case. She believed in second sight, life after death, and communication from beyond. She once had an out-of-body experience when she played Lady Macbeth on the stage here in Dublin. Anne reinvented herself as a director later in life. She once experienced an epiphany during a trip to Kathmandu in Nepal. Anne directed seven travelogue documentaries shot in Nepal, Egypt, Greece, and Iran, among other nations. The world was full of mystery for Anne, which gave her the creative drive and the courage to share it with an audience. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. The Eighth Fail by Anne Todd, published in 1981. Before I Forget by James Mason, published in 1981. James Mason, Odd Man Out by Sheridan Morley, published in 1989. Her Brilliant Career, Ten Extraordinary Women of the Fifties by Rachel Cook, published in 2013. Join me next time for episode 95 when I talk about Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra. And remember, leave a nice review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.